All right, if you could begin making your way back to your seats, that would be great. Grab a Bible if, uh, if you have one. And uh, some of our new 7th graders have Bibles that have been decorated with duct tape. And so uh, that's fun and uh, good to see you guys carrying around copies of God's Word together. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there's one in one of the chairs in front of you. Uh, you can keep it if you don't own a Bible. And uh, our gift to you and just glad to be able to get a copy of God's Word to you. But this morning we are going to be in the book of James. So you're going to want to get over to the book of James. And James is in the New Testament. It's towards the end. Uh, so if you go to the maps and then just start hanging pages to the left, you're going to end up in James eventually. But we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 18 this morning. And what we did and what we saw last week as James began writing his letter to these Christians that had been dispersed, probably because of the persecution that had arisen in Jerusalem and what had taken place after the stoning of Stephen, where the Christian church began to be hotly and intensely persecuted. You remember the man by the name of Saul who began just traveling from town to town to try and find Christians to arrest them. Well, that that created a, a dispersion of believers from Jerusalem, and James, as an elder in the Jerusalem church, is writing now a letter to them, and he's writing to tell them how they are to live in the midst of the new reality they find themselves in. If you will, the, the letter of James that he writes is, how do you live as a Christian? How does what you say you believe correspond and conform to actually how you live and how you work it out. And what James led off with last Sunday morning was that there was a certain way they were to think. That there was a certain way of thinking that was to be true of them because they are believers. And that way of thinking was in the midst of the persecution that they find themselves in, in the midst of the various trials. So not even the intense persecution that would have led them away from their homeland, but just the I stubbed my toe trial. There's supposed to be a different way of thinking that they think with. And that way of thinking was actually to then be characterized by joy. And James never tells them that they are to feel joy, but he tells them in the midst of a various trial, you are to think Joyful, because that trial is being used of God in your life to do something. It's producing steadfastness in you. And James uses this word steadfastness or perseverance. And, and I think we can use uh, muscles as an illustration of, of, of what those words mean and what James intends to mean here. Because as, as you and I may work out or as, as we just actually use our muscles in daily life, they get tired. And if you do any lifting or any running, you, you've actually begun to create small tears in your muscles. But then as they rejoin themselves, they get stronger. And so you're sore after doing push-ups because you've torn some of your pectoral muscles, but over the next couple days as they repair themselves, they stop being sore, and then you have greater strength, and there's a greater capacity to do more push-ups. That's what James is saying faith is like, and the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces perseverance. So as your faith is tested, as it's stretched, God's doing something. 
And he says, let steadfastness reach its end goal, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says, the whole point of the testing of faith that you receive is that you may become more like Christ. You may look more like Jesus, and one day that will ultimately be completed when you stand before him in his presence. But until that day, you and I are being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And the Lord uses trials of various kinds in our lives to create and produce that result. James says that the Lord ordains trials in our lives. Because the very purpose that those trials accomplish is the very purpose for which you and I were saved to be conformed to the image of the Son. Now where James goes this morning in verses 13 to 18 is to begin addressing another question that arises out of an understanding that the Lord ordains trials. And we'll get to that question here in a minute, but I want to pray before we go any further. We'll read the text and then we'll hop in a little deeper. Would you join me? God, we say thank you for the day that you've given us this day that you have made. Your word tells us to rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, I don't know the story of every person in this room, whether today was a day filled with various trials or whether this morning so far it's been, it's been a fairly, fairly calm day. Lord, I know you want to meet with us. You want to reveal things to us and you want to speak to us through your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just come and speak loudly, that you'd give us ears to hear, minds that are able to to think and understand what your word says, to understand how it applies to our life. Lord, we we pray that that, that your spirit would be be active in, in, in such a tangible way in this room this morning that we may understand what it is that you want us to understand. And so, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken. And, Lord, we believe that, that you, you have spoken and that it's in our best interest to draw near and to listen. And so, God, help us do that. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's go to verse 13 together, James chapter 1, verse 13. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. What we're going to see this morning is that James invites us to consider the source of temptation and the source of God's good gifts and his perfect gifts. 
gifts. And really the question before us this morning is how do we make sense of temptation? Because if we're honest, and, and nearly every scholar that I consulted in preparation for this message this morning all wrote almost the identical statement that every trial brings with it a temptation. And so what do we do to make sense of those temptations? Because if what James has said in verses 2 to 12, that his overarching point is that God ordains trials in your life and in my life, trials of various kinds, so that we may be more like Jesus through the testing of our faith. And if those trials then bring with them temptation, is God the one who has brought the temptation? How do we make sense of this? How do we answer that question? And James is going to walk through for us the source of temptation, the source of good gifts and perfect gifts. And it's in essence as if James is inviting us to step back and consider the cause and effect relationship of temptation, sin, and death. Some of you may like to watch medical dramas on TV or crime dramas where at some point in the crime drama you end up in the the medical examiner's room and they're doing an autopsy on the body. That's what James is asking us to do this morning. He's asking us to do an autopsy on the body of temptation, sin, and death to crack it open, to understand how it operates so that we might actually be able to understand how to respond when we face temptation. James wants us to consider the cause and effect relationship, the pathology, if you will. And so what he does and where he begins in verse 13 is he begins to outline for us the source of temptation. And he says very clearly that temptation is not from God. Look back at verse 13 with me. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. You're not allowed to say it because James said you're not allowed to say it because God through James said you're not allowed to say this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Well, why can't we say that? Because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So where James begins in drawing these questions and and asking these questions regarding the cause and effect relationships of trials and temptation, of temptation, sin, and death, is to say in verses 2 to 12, God ordains trials of various kinds in our lives so that we might become more like Jesus through the testing of our faith. And in the midst of those trials, when you and I find ourselves tempted, and that temptation will take a various shade of kind as well, it is not God who has provided or brought that temptation on us. Rather, that trial has revealed something inside of us that temptation is going to now grab a hold of. And that's where James goes in verse 14. So verse 13, the point he makes is, God is not tempting you. Temptation is not from God. So where is temptation from? When you and I feel tempted, where is that from? Temptation is the baiting of your own desires. That's the point James makes in verse 14. So look at 14 with me. 
but each person, when tempted, or is tempted, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So temptation is the baiting of your own desire. Now, at this point, we need to recognize that temptation is not sin. If you find yourself tempted, it is not sin. And you will also find yourself tempted in one of two ways, in the baiting of your desires. Either those desires will be sinful desires that you have, and so the temptation will be go to do something sinful, or those desires might be legitimate desires that the temptation is or the baiting is fulfill them in a way that is contrary to what God has said. Fulfill them in a sinful way. So you tracking with that? Temptation's gonna come in one of two ways. You are either going to have sinful desires baited or you are going to have good desires baited to fulfill in a sinful way. So just consider Jesus. He was tempted after 40 days in the wilderness, right? The first temptation that he encountered was a turn these rocks into bread. Well, he had fasted for 40 days. The physical body that he had was hungry. For him to feel hungry was not a sin. It was Quite frankly, the natural, normal response after fasting. The temptation was to fulfill the desire of hunger in a way contrary to what God had said. The other temptations that Jesus had were, would have been probably along the lines of sinful desires. Now, he didn't have sinful desires, but Satan's offering for him to do these things and to sin. But that moves us then all the way to Hebrews chapter 4, where the author of Hebrews says that we have a great high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin. The author of Hebrews is saying essentially there is nothing new under the sun when it comes to temptation. That what you experience is what Christ has experienced, and because he was sinless and did not yield, he is now a great high priest able to give you the help you need as you face temptation. And temptation is the baiting of your own desires. Look at the language that James uses again in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That Word, those words, lured and enticed, are words that can be used and have been used in, in first century literature um, to describe the act of fishing. The word enticed means to catch by bait. The word lured, and some of you may have a translation that says this, literally means to drag away. See, no fish knowingly bites on a hook. For those of you that are fishermen, you don't just drop empty hooks into the water. What do you do? You put worms on them? You, you get a lure? How about that? I mean, that, we, we even have fishing terminology today. That is this terminology. Because you're wanting to trick the fish. Oh yeah, here, here's, here's a delicious worm for you, just floating, just for you in the water. 
and that fish bites on that worm, and you go to set your line, you've enticed the fish, you've baited the fish, you've drawn out the fish, and then what are you going to do after you hook the fish? You drag them away. Depending on how big the fish, it could be a big fight, could be not a big fight, but you drag them away. This is what James is saying happens with temptation. That temptation is the baiting of your own desires. Now, some of those desires may be God-given desires. And the temptation there is to fulfill them in a way that is dishonoring to the Lord. Some of those desires may just, quite frankly, be sinful desires. But the hook gets dropped into the line. It gets well disguised. And you and I get baited. And this is what James is saying happens when we find ourselves tempted. And I think one of the reasons that he's writing this and one of the ways this can be so helpful for us is we don't often stop and think about what is happening in the midst of being tempted. And yet that's exactly what James is asking us to do. He's asking us to take a step back and to consider the cause and effect relationship of temptation and sin and death so that when we find ourselves tempted, we may better be able to recognize what is happening and how to not yield. To better recognize where the bait is and how to not give in. See, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that no temptation has seized you except which is common to man, but God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but will provide a way out. So the baited hook gets put into the water. You and I don't have to bite. God is not the source of temptation. Trials will reveal temptation in us. They're going to reveal desires in us, and they may be sinful desires that we have inside of us, but those are not from God, and so God is not the author of temptation, but temptation is the baiting of your desires. When you find yourself tempted, something in you is being baited to do in a way that does not honor the Lord. And James continues, verse 15, and then tells us that yielding temptation to temptation births sin. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James is using some interesting language here, language that is of, of, of conception, of, of pregnancy, of birth to try to help us understand what is going on here. And so he says when desire is conceived, what does desire conceive with? I'm not going to put a diagram on the screen, but you need two parts for conception. So one of those parts is desire. What's the other part? It's yielding to the desire. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So those desires in you, which may be godly desires and the temptation, the bait, is to go and fulfill them in a way that the Lord has not told you you can go fulfill them in. 
or they may be sinful desires, when you yield to them, the result of that, the desire and the yielding, births sin. But sin's not done. It, it brings forth its own. It births its own end. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so last week I gave you a little bit of my life. Would have been three weeks ago at 12.30 a.m. Some of you, apparently I left hanging um, when you wanted the rest of the story. Um, it's not that great of a story, uh, but here's what happened. And so if you weren't here, let me just catch you up to speed. I had one of my children... Um, I had just gotten into bed at 10.30, and one of my children decided at that moment they wanted to wake up, and they wanted, they wanted to start their day. And I was not interested in starting my day. I was very interested in ending my day. And so I, I ended up, I, I took the child, we just went downstairs, and I turned on Food Network, I watched Chopped, and just let the child play. And we did that for like two hours. And I, there's, I love Chopped, but there's only so much Chopped you can watch at that hour of the night. And so at 12.30, I go back upstairs, and, and I'm going to try to put the child back in its bed and try to, try to help the child get back to sleep, and, and it's just not having it. And so all... I, I promise you, every ounce of energy this child had went into the act of screaming in that moment. And the child just let loose. And, and, and so I, Carrie and I traded spots at that point. And so now I'm laying in, in, the bed, in the bed. She's downstairs. She's with a screaming child who I can hear now through our whole house is screaming. And I'm laying there and I'm thinking, somehow this is supposed to be joy. Like, I'm supposed to consider this joyful. Like, because the Lord's doing something in the midst of these moments right here and now that's, that's making me more like Jesus. I don't feel joy. I, I feel tired. I feel frustrated. I probably feel a little bit of anger. And there's a whole lot of selfishness that's feeling as well because I just want to go to bed. But somehow I'm supposed to consider and think of this moment and this trial as joy because the Lord's using this to test my faith and to make me more like Jesus. So I'm laying there processing all of this. So I get up and I go downstairs and I check in with Carrie and I was like, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm all right. I was like, do you need anything from me? And, and she wasn't doing the toy route. So she, the lights were off and she was just going to kind of work out and, and just uh, try to help the child go to sleep. And she's like, yeah, that's fine. Just, just you know, go back to bed. And, and so I, I did. And so the rest of the story is I just went back. I just went to sleep. And, and so she, about an hour later, at about 1.30, uh, was able to get the child then to go to sleep as well. And the ch- child slept until the child fell off the bed and then woke up um, at 5.30 and then was just up for the rest of the morning. Um, and, and so, but, but in that moment, in that 12.30 moment, when I'm, when I'm feeling frustrated, when I'm feeling selfish, because I just want to go to bed, there is a baiting of my desires. Now, the desire for sleep, it's not a bad desire. And God's placed that desire in us. Maybe not at this stage in your life, but <laughs> he will eventually replace the desire for sleep in you. All right, it, it's a God-given desire. And, and yet the, the sinful desire was, well, I, I want my sleep and I want it now and I want it at the cost of whatever it takes to get it. And 
There's a baiting of that. That's what James says happens when temptation occurs. Can be godly desires that the bait is to find fulfillment of in a way that does not honor the Lord. Or it could be just sinful desires and the baits to just indulge and do it your way. And James tells us temptation's not from God. Temptation is actually from within. And the Bible is very clear about what, what is inside of us and the work that Christ does in us and the Lord does through Christ in us. And so we shouldn't actually be surprised when what's within is revealed. Oftentimes, I think we are surprised, and, and, and there, will, there will be, Lord willing, a, a maturing and a growing in us to where what is revealed in those moments is, is more and more like Christ and less and less like the world. But the reality is, is that if, if you and I were dead in our sin, and the Bible is very clear about this, that if our our, our position, default position before Christ came and radically saved us was that we were, we were depraved. And then the Christian life is a lifetime of being made more like Jesus from one degree to the next. When temptation baits sin, we shouldn't be surprised. We should expect it. We should learn how to respond to it. And James is helpful in this way because he's just telling us, look, it's from within, and here's how you respond. And the result of responding and yielding to it is death. Well, in the following verses, James then walks us through the source of good gifts and perfect gifts, and that may read a little redundant for you, but it is not redundant. In fact, it's actually quite purposeful. Some of your translations may just say good and perfect gifts. It doesn't actually quite render what James wrote correctly, because what James wrote was the words good gifts and perfect gifts. He's trying to make a point here. Let's go to verse 16, and we'll dig in. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, of whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So against the backdrop and reality of sinful desires, temptation, sin, and death, James now directs our focus and attention at the grace of God the unchangeableness of God, and the saving work of God. Consider first, in the beginning of verse 17, the grace of God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. The reason it's not redundant is because the word gift, as James wrote it, is one word in English. It's actually two different words that he originally wrote. The first gift, so it would be after the word good, is a word that describes and is used for describing the act of giving. The second word gift, which is comes after the word perfect, is the word that describes the gift 
itself. So here's what James is saying. That not only what God gives you is perfect, but the very act of him giving is also good. He gives good gifts, and he gives perfect gifts. James focuses our attention firstly on the grace of God. And Jesus made a point very similar to this in Matthew chapter 7 in comparing the heavenly father with earthly fathers and said to a group of men who were more than likely fathers, if you guys know how to give gifts to your kids that are good, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to you? And the argument there is from the lesser to the greater. If, if you are capable of doing it as an imperfect man, how much more is the father able to do it as a perfect man? And James makes a similar argument here and tells us to first consider the grace of God. Secondly, he asks us and focuses our attention to consider the unchangeableness of God. Verse 17, again, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, of whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So there's an unchangeableness to God. There's no variation. There's no shifting of shadows. He, he is the one who is giving the good gifts. He is the one who is giving the perfect gifts. And they will always be good and they will always be perfect because that's who he is. He's a good, good father. And James uses language which is very similar to the language that Moses wrote in the book of Genesis where he cites the Lord as the father of lights of whom there is no variation to change or shifting of shadows. Now, what causes shadows? It's light being behind an object. So there's a shadow of me here on the floor because one of these spotlights is coming down. It's behind me, so it's catching my body, and it's placing a shadow on the stage here. The point James is making is that there's no light behind the Father of Light. And against the backdrop and reality of sin and temptation and death, James first points our focus and attention to the grace of God. He secondly points our focus and attention on the unchangeableness of God and the very nature of who God is. There is no shifting shadow. There is no change within him because there is nothing beyond him. And earlier, the idea was said that there's nothing new under the sun. But James points our focus and attention to the one who sits enthroned above the sun. The one who called the sun into being and the one who causes the sun to shine. The one who has no change because there is no light behind him to cause a shifting shadow. So you find yourself in the midst of temptation and you pray and ask for the wisdom to navigate the trial, the, 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 what you need in that moment, the grace and mercy for your help in time of need. And you come with undivided loyalty before him. What he gives you is good. And what he gives you is perfect. And it is always good. And it is always perfect. And it is never changing, nor will it ever change, because there is nothing beyond him. He is it. There is an unchangeableness to God. 
And on the backdrop of what James wrote in verse 5, where if anyone lacks wisdom, let him come and ask in faith. And the Lord who gives graciously. You see the, the giving. And he does so because that's who he is. And the very act of giving that he gives with is good. And the very gifts that he gives are perfect. Well, lastly, James puts our focus and attention on the saving work of God. Considering perhaps what is, is balm for a weary, tired soul that James might be writing to is verse 18. And James focusing our attention on the saving work of God. Because if you are, are finding yourselves in the midst of a trial and you're finding yourselves in the midst of experiencing the baiting of your desires and the opportunity for temptation to give in within that trial and wondering, okay, if God has indeed saved me, what, what, why am I still experiencing this? What is going on here? Is this the result of, uh, is the temptation from him? Is it not? And, and James in verse 18 gives gives balm to weary, maybe even frail souls by directing our attention on the saving work of God. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Salvation is of his own will. You and I don't do anything. Salvation is the result of God's saving. And so you find yourself wondering, you find yourself weary, you find yourself frail in, in the midst of temptation, which at, at, at some points temptation can feel absolutely unending. You find yourself wondering, if, if, I, if I give in, is the Lord going to let me go? It, I, I didn't think I was supposed to experience any of this because I, I thought I was him and, and just kind of happy-go-lucky from here on out. And in and, 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 and response to those very real, very real positions that we could find ourselves leaning towards, James answers that question. That salvation is of his own will. He points and directs our focus and attention on the saving work of God. And he uses very, very similar language in doing so as he did to, and in regards to sin and death. Where sin, when fully grown, brings forth death, the Lord brought forth life. And he does so by the word of truth. He does so by the gospel. And Jesus himself pictured the gospel as a seed that is sown, that brings forth and yields fruit. And James is, is picking up on that idea. He's saying, look, you, you find yourself weary, you find yourself frail, you find yourself wondering in the midst of temptation, where do I go from here? How do I stand up in the midst of it? What do I do? Is this even supposed to be happening? Is God out for me? Is he somehow trying to get after me? Does he really want me to give in? There's, there's no end in sight to this. And James says, wait a minute, wait a minute. The temptation's not from God. The trial that he's ordained has, has created an opportunity that reveals desires in you that are now being baited 
And in the midst of that baiting, in the midst of that temptation, you focus your attention on the grace of God because he gives good gifts and he gives perfect gifts. You focus your attention on the unchangeableness of God because there is no shadow due to change because there is nothing beyond him. There is no light that stands behind him that would cause a shifting shadow. And you consider the very nature of the salvation that you have. Of his own will, he brought us forth. So I don't know where you find yourself this morning. If you find yourself frail and weary because of temptation, if you find yourself wondering when and where is it going to end, if you find yourself wondering, am I going to give in one more time or am I going to actually have the strength to stand, James gives you a battle plan of how to stand. You focus on the grace of God. In verse 5, he told you to, to, to come and draw near, to ask for the wisdom needed to navigate the trial. We're told to draw near in our time of need in Hebrews 4, 16, because we'll find the grace and mercy we need. It says you consider who exactly God is and how he never changes. You consider his saving work in your life. See, and the church has penned songs throughout its history. Great is thy faithfulness, O God our Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. You and I may feel like we're prone to fail. His compassions fail not. 